This episode contains discussions of some topics that may be upsetting to certain listeners, such as PTSD, suicide, child abandonment, and just general misery. That does not mean that the book or the discussion are not good. I mean, that's up to you to decide. But be warned that this is going to be a heavier episode than most of our others. If that's not something you are interested in listening to right now, go check out one of our other episodes. We have a lot of them, and most of them are pretty upbeat. But this book touches on some important topics, and so we went ahead and talked about those. So, hope you enjoy. Hello, kids, and welcome to episode 38 of Hello, Fellow Kids. Was I supposed to say something? Not necessarily. I just okay. left a window in case you wanted to. <laughs> I was looking at my notes. That's a, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm not terribly relaxed on the episodes where I'm the synopsis person, so... Right. I'm always just like, okay, do I have it open to the right page? <laughs> Can I read my writing? I feel like one of the things that neither of us have gotten super great at when we're making this is remembering that nobody's listening live so we can take as much time as we want to like prepare ourselves and do alternate takes and things like that if we feel like something isn't like going well but we both just get so flustered about like getting it right that we don't stop and be like oh you know what we can cut out all this dead air later and not worry about it I think it's because both of us aren't terribly tactful, so we're worried what the other person will say. Like, we're not, like, hateful and mean and just waiting for a chance to jump on the other one, but, I mean, we are going to remark on it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, for this month, uh, we read Wolf Hollow by Lauren Wolk, and this was actually suggested to us by a listener named Lily. So, thank you, Lily, for suggesting us. Um, um yeah, book. Lily. Thank you. I don't think it would have been on my radar if um, anyone mm-hmm. said anything, so. No. That sounds like a very negative no, but, uh, you know, it's got the, uh, it's a Newberry Honor book, so, you know, it's not going to be a fun story where they all go to a water slide park or anything <laughs> like that. Like, the Wolf Hollow in this isn't, like, Great Wolf Lodge. Right. Like, it's a section of it's Wolf Hollow where, uh. We're mean to World War One veterans, I guess. But um, that yeah, this was this was very Newberry book where I'd be all like, "Hey, this was a really good book. A kid should read this," and the kid would be all like, "I don't want to read this." Yeah. So that, it's it's a good book though. What did you see my Goodreads rating? I did. Yeah, I gave it five stars because through through all of this, I was like, "Ah, solid four. This is a solid four. I'm enjoying this." And uh, I, I told Josh, I saw him yesterday, and I said that I hadn't finished the book yet at that time, but I had read the Wikipedia page and I'd read ahead because I was like, how bad is this going to get? Because I'm really anxious, you know? So I knew how it ended, but still the ending hit me and like I closed the book and then cried for 15 minutes. So that if you can make me do that, you get five stars. 
See, that's that's, that's super interesting because I would not have pegged this as a five star book for you. Me neither. Me neither. I was just like, it's got to be five stars now because uh, I sat and cried. But it just, I don't know. We'll get into it, but it just hit something in me. Yeah, I, I cried for 15 minutes after I read the book. And then um, I waited to do my notes the next day. Started weeping while doing my notes. So, yeah, this this is five stars. I went to the Wikipedia page, and I think why it hit so hard was her inspiration for this was the election and events around certain people in, tw- in 2016. Mm. So it kind of took me back to the hopelessness of that time and twisting facts to further your own whatever and the innocent people who are affected by that. So that's why I ended up crying my, it it didn't stop. And I'm like, okay, please stop. And I was like, no, this is going to happen. So, um, and I'm uh, apologizing in advance for this because there's probably going to be really awkward sections where I'm like, holding back tears so luckily there's no video on this but <laughs> no, uh, we're still recording yeah. remotely so i i won't have to see it <laughs> <laughs> you're like god i hope she stops <laughs> okay am i gonna go regret asking what did, how did you feel about this eh i thought it was well written and uh i didn't look at the wikipedia page so i didn't know that it like it was inspired by that specific feeling of that recent events i guess it felt like a book that was more designed as a like more of an adult literary fiction that happened to feature kids and so they kind of pushed it towards kids but didn't really feel like a book for or about kids in the same way um and it, the all of the reviews at the front compare it to to kill a mockingbird Oh, yeah. Um, which is um, not a yeah. book I particularly like either. Um, <laughs> and it was just, it, it also might have had to do with the fact that the other books that I'm reading aren't like, they're not exactly pick me up books, uh, both in terms of like topic or quality. Uh, so for this one, just being awful things happening to people for 300 pages, I was like, I don't need more of this. Yeah, that's understandable. I, I, get, I totally get what you mean though about like, if the mom had had, like a sexual affair with Toby. That's how we could have made this an adult book. Right. You know, that was the only thing missing. Otherwise, I 100% agree that this did not feel like a children's book. Um, it really did have all the trappings of a uh, literary fiction book. Yeah, so I think it's, this is one of those ones where I think we're both going to agree that, like, from a technical level, it's mostly pretty strong, but it's really just going to vary on if it kind of gut punches you in a in a mm-hmm. in a personal way because like I, I i wasn't reading it and being like oh that's this is so like clumsily constructed or things like that oh you know? no i didn't Not have far I, from it i didn't have very many technical there were a couple of spots where i felt like it was maybe like reaching a little bit more for that kind of like literary language that i felt was appropriate in certain scenes but the overall construction of it was still pretty strong i was surprised I, when i looked at the wikipedia page um i was surprised this is a debut Really? I thought I yeah. I would have assumed that it was maybe her first young adult novel, but not her first ever novel. So that's interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. I was just like, we have read a few debuts on here that were very clumsy, who they, they did not stick the landing. They fell on their ass and like <laughs> broke a leg at the same they, time. <laughs> they like they like went off the springboard and then just never landed. And you're just like, uh, 
All right, they, bye. They jumped off the springboard and somehow ended up in the pool. And they're like, how did you end up in another sport? <laughs> so I had a few things to just be impressed by on that score. And I wouldn't mind picking up another. Apparently, she's written a butt ton since. Well, I mean, two books they show me on the back. But hey, listen, you know, I, for someone who hasn't completed anything in like a decade, that's a butt ton for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's do this so then we can have it be over and I can start focusing on happy things because I'm like, yeah, I just, I need a happy thing so bad after this. <laughs> it was just so, okay. <laughs> after right, this, right. we're just going to read a collection of Calvin and Hobbes comics. <laughs> That'd be perfect, but we'd have to make sure to like not do the section about when he finds the sick raccoon. Oh, so yeah, like, that's rough. Skip. We're going to skip that one. <laughs> All right, here we go. We begin our story with a cryptic prologue about how our protagonist learned to lie before she was 12 and lives were ruined. We're suitably warned this is not a happy story. So now I have an anxious acidy tummy now. Thanks, Lauren Wolk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my sassiness stops pretty quick. <laughs> like I start sassy and then it just kind of turns into like Mars trying to hold it together. It, just, it doesn't feel right anymore. Yeah, I was just like, I'm adopting the completely wrong tone for this time to... So, um, yeah, there's going to be some sassiness that uh, I assure you stops. So I, anybody I might who's have a couple this, of spots that I can inject it. Not for any big stuff, but like a couple of like throwaway things. That's completely fine. We kind of need the levity for this. All right, chapter one. It's 1943, and we properly meet our protagonist, Annabelle, when she has to stand there awkwardly while her mom asks, WTF happened to Annabelle's piggy bank? Her mom reassures her that she doesn't have to hide it since none of the family is going to steal from her. Annabelle, though, hasn't started mistrusting her family. She was shaking out a penny for a shitty little extortionist at school. And in her fumbling anxiety, she dropped her piggy bank and shattered it. Um, the little extortionist in question is new girl Betty Glengarry, who recently moved to Annabelle's small rural town in western Pennsylvania from uh, the city. I think it's Pittsburgh in order to stay with her grandparents. There'd already been rumors of Betty sucking, but she lives up to every word once she starts school, uh, throwing spitballs and stabbing people with her pencil. This is some small potatoes, but then she tells the little kids about the birds and the bees in the most graphic, gross way possible. Then she threatens to beat them if they tell on her. Like, can she really beat all of them, though? Bond together and everyone tell your parents. Unionize. <laughs> We get a foreshadowing section where Annabelle asks her grandfather how um, Wolf Hollow got its name. Turns out uh, back in the day, the area had a problem with wolves getting too bold and attacking humans. So everyone dug trenches and caught the wolves in them to kill them. Annabelle is horrified. Even the baby wolves? Couldn't they have been raised alongside dogs? Grandpa says a wolf can never be a dog no matter how you raise it. Besides, why are you acting like such a hippie? I killed a young copperhead in front of you and you said nothing. Annabelle's like, that's totally different. And Grandpa says, not to the snake it isn't, or to the god who made it. Uh, that was my first, like, line that I starred as being like, I really like that line. Oh, it was uh, really good, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Can you guess what I wrote next to uh, the Glengarry's? Glengarry, Glen Ross? I wrote Coffees for Closers. Coffees yeah. for Closers, <laughs> yeah. We're both there. I did not make a single Coffees for Closers joke in this. <gasps> oh, to be fair, Betty's terrible, so <laughs> <laughs> I was not thinking anything lighthearted. <laughs> All right, chapter two. Betty corners Annabelle in Wolf Hollow and accuses her of being rich. This has never occurred to Annabelle before since she doesn't own a yacht or anything. 
Um, her family is well off, though, since they own a farm and their house can hold all three generations of her family. And they have running water and electricity and they go out to eat twice a year. But Betty's reasoning, though, is not nearly as practical. She says that Annabelle's family has a purple window, referring to the stained glass in the front window. So listen up, purple window. You're going to bring me something tomorrow or I'm going to beat you with a stick. She presents the hugest stick ever, and Annabelle's like, okay, what do you want exactly? While picturing how the hell she's going to bring this nut bird a sheet of friggin' glass. Betty's like, just bring whatever. I'll beat your youngest brother with a rock. Jesus. <laughs> do you have anything to add? Nothing substantial. I, I was expecting the window to come back around. I thought she was going to break it, and then, like, and then, like, Annabelle was going to try and, like, cover for her as a way to, like, try and redeem Betty or something like that. The book actually, like, it sidestepped a lot of my predictions, which I think is mostly good. But at this point, I was anticipating it to be more of, like, their direct relationship. Also, I wrote that I hate the phrase yellow hair, and it has nothing to do with anything. Like, the author has done nothing wrong. It's just that for whatever reason, when I think yellow hair, it has to be, like, dyed bright yellow. I don't think of it as a natural color, and so it bugs me, but that is entirely on me. I kind of picture that, too, like, uh, or, like, a really old doll it looks all mangy and nasty and the yeah. hair is all yellowed. Yeah, that's yeah. always what I picture, too. It's not, I never think of it as complimentary. Yeah. <laughs> she's got yellow hair. I'm like, gross. And I'm like, no, I mean, she's blonde. I'm like, just say blonde then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think also it's a very old-fashioned way of referring to uh, lighter colored hair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, chapter three. Annabelle tells us about how her family's land is a popular shortcut. Uh, to get from the hollows to the rest of the houses in the area. And some of those folk are drifters. But the one most relevant to this story is a guy named Toby. He'll be our Boo Radley for this book. Toby is a veteran of the First World War. And like many who returned from conflict overseas, it affected him. He mostly stays by himself out in the woods and doesn't talk much. However, he did see Annabelle with a camera once, uh, one that her mom won by submitting a picture of the kids to a Kodak contest, and it interests him. He takes to borrowing the camera from the family until they just pretty much just let him keep it. That was kind of the whole chapter, sort of introducing our buddy Toby. Can you think of anything more mid-America than entering a contest for a lifetime supply of film through Kodak. Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just like, oh my god, that's so, like, charming and old-timey, like, contests to send yeah. away for things. And it's like, it's like actual lifetime supply. Like, our, like, if you win a lifetime supply of things today, they've, like, done the math of, like, the average consumer use of whatever the product is and they just like send it all to you at once or something like that i mean depending mm -hmm. on what it is um but there with this it's like you would send in a role to get developed and they would send you back i think one or two new ones so it was like you were actually never going to run out yeah there's something very charming about that i know <laughs> i i just kind of think of like sending away contests like at this era of america is what i think of yeah I mean, there was kind of some of that, like, later, but I don't know. I think it was more prominent during this time. I remember my dad once uh, sent away, we bought enough boxes of tricks and saved the uh, box tops, and we sent away for uh, hypno sunglasses that just had, like, little circles painted on them, so it looked like, ooh, like you're getting hypnotized. <laughs> It took so long to get them back that we'd forgotten we ever sent away for them. And then just one day, there they were. And there's like a picture of me and my brother 
with them and we're like doing like the um Richard Nixon two fingers up pose for some reason. I think my dad my dad would direct us to pose in certain ways. <laughs> That's what he had us do. <laughs> I am kind of surprised, though, that they're doing, a like, one of these giveaways during 1943, just in the sense that I figured that, like, whatever material is used to produce, like, film, they could have been repurposing it for the war. Um, but maybe they weren't in, like, hardcore, all our resources are going to that mode. Uh, I don't know. How bad, Linda, the boys over in Europe near need Kodak film. <laughs> Chapter 4. Annabelle presents Betty with a penny, who's like, what the fuck? No, I want something good. <laughs> <laughs> she won't take, we're not rich, you moron, for an answer, either, and beats Annabelle in the hip with a stick a few times. For a while, Annabelle considers giving Betty her Aunt Lily sweater frog, which Annabelle borrowed and never actually gave back. Uh, she talks to her Aunt Lily to find out if she remembers loaning it out, and yes, she does, but she doesn't remember getting it back. Pondering on this, Annabelle's mother sends her outside with a meal for Toby. I had to look up what a sweater frog was. Same! I was like, I was like what is this? And then I saw it and went, okay. It's like a fancy clasp that you put on to hold a sweater shut. And it's like, okay, so you'd have that, but not buttons? I don't really understand. I uh, I had to look it up and then amend my search wording a couple of times because it just kept giving me, like, hoodies with, like, frogs. With frogs on them, yeah. <laughs> what finally got it for me was Sweater Frog 1940s. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I also had to look yeah. up the pants later because I didn't recognize those by name. Comments. Oh, Jod Purse? Yeah. Aren't they like those funny pants that like people always have like old timey directors wearing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I knew what those were. And I think like people who rode horses wore those too. Yeah. yeah but I, I was not familiar with a sweater frog. Hey, how quickly did you want to punch Aunt Lily in the face? Uh, it wasn't this chapter, but pretty soon after. Yeah. She keeps um, doing, she keeps saying stuff like, like Annabelle comments about this sweater frog being pretty and Aunt Lily's like, pretty. Nothing less important in the eyes of God, Annabelle, than pretty. And I wrote, she says, because she's ugly. <laughs> says the ugly person. Um, <laughs> she started getting to... I don't like when people feel like they can parent other people's children. And she does that with the kids. And I could see doing that if, like, the parents weren't good. But the parents are terrific in this book. Yeah. Like, unrealistically so, given the time period. These are excellent parents. These are fairly modern parents kind of I wouldn't even say it. that. I feel like they're better than modern day parents. This is just like dream parenting you'd want. Parents like this are so rare. Like I've come across it a few times. Never my own. I mean, no offense to, well, full offense to my father, but like no offense to my mom. She wasn't quite as good as this, but I think she would be, I think she would be at the level of the parents in this book considering the Toby thing. Cause I don't know. She just is better than Aunt Lily by, like, a lot. <laughs> but, yeah, she just orders the kids around how she wants and just goes ahead and makes a judgment on stuff so many times without having all the facts, where she's sneering at the little girl crying at the table, and they're all like, her friend lost an eye, and she's like, oh. <laughs> well, and then she gets all defensive about it, because she's like, how was I supposed to know? And it's like, well, you weren't, but you shouldn't have been saying anything. You should have waited until you found out, is the thing. <laughs> That's the problem, and you're not learning it every time you have to walk it back. Jeez, can't you oh. take a joke? I don't know. You tell me, ugly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on. Chapter 5. Toby meets Annabelle for the food, uh, something he never does. Usually she just uh, leaves it in some box nearby for him and he gets it. 
But when he meets her, he hands uh, her the penny that Betty had slapped out of Annabelle's hand. Apparently, he saw the whole incident, and with this action, he's letting Annabelle know that he's looking out for her. You know, he doesn't actually say that because that would take words. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But she comes home. Her dad's waiting for her. He always waits when she goes to, like, give Toby food or something. The dad tells her to let him know if Toby ever worries her. And bless her heart, she doesn't know what he means. (laughs) She's just like, you mean if he seems sad? And the dad's just like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Getting ready for bed and taking stock of her bruises, Annabelle decides she's not giving Betty a goddamn thing. She walks with her brothers to school the next day and doesn't give Betty the chance to get her alone. And it turns out this works out just fine because uh, one of the bigger boys, Andy Woodbury, returns to school and Betty gets a flirt with him. So she forgets to be a sociopath for a while. Uh, yeah, they live in a rural area. So most of the time uh, during certain seasons, the older boys don't go to school. They're like at home doing chores or helping with the harvest or whatever it is they need to do. Um, I went to college in eastern Pennsylvania for a year. I'm not going to say what's cool, but I hated it there. And um, even modern day times, college years, we had a whole week off of school when hunting season opened. So <laughs> Josh and I are city folk, so we don't we go to school when we go to school. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, but my mom has a garden. They'd be all like, I don't care. You have to write a book report. Yeah, that was interesting. And they have to, like, double up on desks and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad I didn't go to school in a one-room schoolhouse. It sounds miserable. I went to school in a portable for a few years. You're like, I was longing for a schoolhouse. For the majority, I think, of my elementary school, my classroom was ended up being in one of the portables. So, like, I was actually not super familiar with the layout of my own school. Because, like, I knew the portable, and I knew, like, how to get to the library and the gym, but I didn't know where, like, other people's classrooms were and stuff, because hey, we what, weren't on the main... What about room? Huh? Where'd you eat? Uh, well, the, the, I mean, the lunchroom was, like, connected to the gym, so that was all oh, okay. one sort of thing. Right, we had a cafetorium, where yeah. it was the cafeteria, the gym, and the auditorium. Yeah, exactly. You couldn't tell from that handy portmanteau. <laughs> Alright, we're gonna put a cafetorium on that conversation. <laughs> oh my god, good, I was hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to work out, and I need to dance! <laughs> okay, chapter six. Well, the strain of being normal is just too much because a few days later, Betty's back in action. She holds a little quail in her lap, and it charms Annabelle's little brothers. When Betty sends them along to school, she starts strangling the quail, ignoring Annabelle's screams, and then she snaps its neck. She tosses the corpse at Annabelle, which is when Toby steps in between them. He scoops up the quail, and he snarls at Betty to leave Annabelle alone and then takes off. When he does, Annabelle sees that Betty's fallen in some poison ivy. She doesn't tell her, though. (laughs) but does let her know that she's messed up. Betty's like, bitch, your mom snaps chicken's necks for dinner, so guess what? She's messed up, too. Annabelle says, no, this is way different. She can tell that Betty really can't see the difference, though. After school, Annabelle's mom is gathering jewel weed because Betty's grandmother called for help with the poison ivy situation. Uh, She makes Annabelle come with her to bring the medicine. Betty's pretty badly off, and Annabelle can't help but feel bad for her. She also feels bad at the hints from Mrs. Glengarry that Betty's father left her. I mean, my dad left, too. I didn't 
snap a quail's neck about it though yeah this was this was about when i was just like oh so the, there's not gonna be an upswing on this in terms of like like it's just gonna be awful things just back to back i was yeah, really they're, bummed they're like strap in actually i'm kind of glad that it kind of it was just these few incidents and then like the big one you know because i was just like i don't know how much more of this i can take and right. then the big one happens and i'm like okay all right because <laughs> i don't know how much more i can handle them being all like if the whole book had just been like them going to the grandparents, like, hey, your kid's psycho. And they're like, no, she's not. Then I would have been like bashing my head against the wall repeatedly because there's only so much of that I can take. Right. But yeah, I, I agree that this is just a this is the real series of unfortunate events. <laughs> I was trying to think of a clever uh, VFD abbreviation, but I couldn't. Very funky diva. <laughs> to the tune of Funky Cold Medina. Yeah. And it's just like Betty's song. Where she comes striding into the, oh my god, if you could score a movie in completely anachronistic, stupid songs, she comes strutting to the yard, funky comedina. <laughs> or no, better would be, wild thing. Which is actually the same song. <laughs> Basically, yeah. yeah. I, I found a video that overlays the two songs and you can't tell the difference. <laughs> Chapter 7. Betty recovers from her poison ivy and returns to school. Annabelle asks her why she's so mean, and Betty plays it off as their age difference, and that Annabelle will see when she's older. Well, Bets, I'm 36. I've never beat a child with a stick in my life, so I call BS. Annabelle does as well, bless her heart. Okay, one day, here we go. It's gonna get worse, folks. (laughs) One day, a local man called Mr. Ansel passes by the school with his horse and cart to take his apples to market. He stops and he talks with Annabelle and her friend Ruth. While they're pleasantly chatting, a rock flies through the air and hits Ruth right in the eye. The teacher, Mrs. Taylor, takes Ruth to the hospital. Uh, Mr. Ansel goes to tell Ruth's parents what happened, and Annabelle sends her brothers to go get their mom. Annabelle washes Ruth's blood off the road. Betty and Andy are nowhere to be found during this time. Hmm. Both of Annabelle's parents come to the school. While her mom goes inside to watch the kids who didn't go home, Annabelle's dad plays CSI detective and has her go through everything that happened. He deduces that the rock didn't fall off the cart, and it came from higher up, most likely a nearby hill. I don't want anything in my eye ever. Yep. This this made my eye hurt, like, the whole, every time they brought it up. I just felt, like, sympathetic, like, twinges in my eye, and I was like, I hate shit about eyes. I can't do eyes and things happening with fingernails. I, I can't. Yeah. Like, it's so upsetting to me. I'm also glad that this happened relatively early in the book, though worse, well, I don't know about worse things, but other bad things also continue to occur. But part of the reason why I'm glad that we get this out of the way is because... I felt like she was on the cusp of leaning too heavily into the foreshadowing of, like, had I known what would have come next, I might have done things differently. Like, I felt she was kind of using that several times in the previous chapters to a degree where I was like, if you do much more of this, I'm going to be like, why have I read half the book and nothing's happened yet? So I was glad that we got to that. Yeah, she paid it off pretty quick, and I I don't like when books do that a whole lot, too. I'm just like... Please stop it. You're making me more anxious and sick. Yeah, it's like, it's like, that's, that's not writing a story. That's just promising that eventually there will be a story. It's gonna get bad. You're gonna get upset. I'm like, okay. And then you start building it up in your head and then uh, you would reach a point eventually where a kid gets hit in the head with a rock and you're like, that's it? But putting it this early into the book, it's like, ooh, uh. But if we had read like 300 pages and it was like, and then she got hit in the eye and it's like, really? read all that for that yeah 
it's, it's good to know kind of like where your payoffs need to occur to make sure that they feel kind of uh, scaled appropriately. At this point, Betty's just been doing shit that's not really connected to anything yet. She's just opportunity for awfulness whenever. Yeah. But this directly has a link to everything else that happens later. So that's when it stops being like randomized violence and she's all like, oh, no, I have a mission now. And you're like, can't, can't your mission just be like you just go to school <laughs> and like live your life? Why do you need to be awful? What if, we, what if we just sent her on an actual mission and she comes back and she's like, have I told you about our Lord and Savior? All right. Chapter eight. Ruth ends up losing her eye. Annabelle is shooketh that it easily could have been her. I wrote shooketh. I'm so glad I stopped this tone like pretty, pretty quick after this. Anyway, she's she's uh, realizes this. It easily could have been her. And her mom tells her that she suspects that neither Annabelle nor Ruth were the real targets, but poor German Mr. Ansel. There's lots of anti-German feeling now since, uh, hello, it's 1943. And also there's residual hard feelings after the Great War as well. The next morning, Annabelle cries a little and her aunt snipes at her for it until Annabelle's mom shuts it down. Lily needs to find her own damn house if she's going to needle a little girl for crying over a friend being disfigured. Betty confronts Annabelle on the way to school and says she's not backing down, and Annabelle's just worn out and says, no, we're not doing this, and she takes off. Later, Annabelle sees Andy and Betty conspiring and looking at her and has no idea what their deal is, at least not until after school when her brothers run ahead of her and she hears one screaming. The youngest, James, just got cut pretty badly in the head by a metal tripwire strung across the path. They see Betty watching them, and they rush home without confronting her. Annabelle goes to show her father the wire, but it's gone. However, the gouges it left in the tree are still there, so good job covering your tracks, Betty, you stupid bitch. When they go back to the house, Annabelle sits down with her parents, and she tells them everything about Betty's bullying. To my surprise, they take her seriously and tell her they'll take care of the situation. In the meantime, she's to come to them right away if Betty does anything else. If I can be honest, I actually think that the wire across the path is more horrifying than the rock. I thought of uh, the movie You're Next. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Yeah, that's immediately what I thought of. And like the youngest child in the family was the one who ran into that one as well. But luckily, it wasn't at throat level for him. Yeah, like Um, the end result for him isn't as bad as the end result for Ruth. But like, that's even more premeditated. Yeah. Like, that's what kind of freaks me out is that the time it would have taken her to be like, I'm going to get this wire. I'm going to make sure it's sharp. I'm going to string it across at the correct level on the correct path. I'm going to go back and clean it up later. Like, at that point, I was, yeah. that was really upsetting. Because, like, the rock situation is like, I'm just going to heave this and whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And there's no way she could have aimed for the eye and got it. Like, no one's that good of a sh- She's not a sniper. She's a 14-year-old girl. But yeah, this the wire thing was really spooky, and I think it was probably Andy's idea and helped her execute it. Yeah. Because where the hell would she have gotten a wire? He he probably has all kinds of stuff because he's on a farm himself. Right. Yeah. But they're lucky that older boy didn't hit it because he probably would have hit it throat first. Yeah. All right, chapter nine. The next day, Saturday, uh, Annabelle and her parents plan to go to the Glengarry's and tell Betty's grandparents everything. First, though, her mother takes her to visit Ruth. When Annabelle asks when she's coming back to school, Ruth says she isn't, that she and her family are moving back into the city where her father works. Both girls are crying, and Annabelle's mother ushers her away. We're told this is the last time the girls saw each other. Uh, when it said, like, I never saw Ruth again, I was like, did she die? <laughs> no. She just, they just moved away really quickly, I guess. <laughs> well, 
I mean, to be fair, though, like, that could kind of be the same thing. Like, it's not like they have internet or, like, accessibility isn't what it is now. Right. Well, they have letters. Oh, I, um, I forgot about the concept of handwriting. <laughs> You're like, oh. I'm so bad at it, I just... People people communicated before internet. <laughs> yeah, like, cross countries and shit it was amazing. Anyway, well, it gets worse. <laughs> when Annabelle's family meets with the Glengarrys, Betty denies everything and blames the rock and tripwire on Toby, of all people. Betty says she and Andy were in the Belfry and watched Toby throw the rock at Mr. Ansel, and her grandparents just eat this story up because, never mind, these two men have interacted for years with no trouble. This makes perfect sense, because Germans! The tripwire was left by Toby to get Betty, and what about Annabelle's bruise and choking out the quail? Are we going to ignore that? We are. Well, later, Annabelle's dad goes to talk to Toby. He saw that his shack was covered in all the photos he's taken and thought they were beautiful, what little he could see in the fading light. He tells Toby what Betty's claiming, and all Toby says is, they made scratches on the turtle stone, and then requests that Annabelle bring his pictures once they develop. Annabelle explains to us that the turtle stone is a turtle-shaped boulder in Wolf Hollow that's threaded through with quartz. The locals presume it meant something to the Native Americans. Thanks, Toby. That clears everything up. <laughs> Thanks, bud. Um, Yep. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, you could just, if you would just tell a story coherently, but the whole point is that he can't, he kind of mentions it later, but that's something that kind of drives me nuts, you know, when there's like, you could have just said a few things and it would have cleared everything up. Yeah, and know? like, you know, he kind of like flip-flops because he can play a role where he can talk just fine, and so it's like, why don't you just... I bet the strain of that is tough, though. yeah. You know, what he did know about talking to people, he's probably lost over the last, like, 30 years since his horrible experience. We, we're kind of downplaying what he went through. Cause well, because we, haven't, we point, haven't really addressed it in the text yet what he went through. Right, uh, but I, I do want to take a moment, though, about talking about the First World War, which they called the Great War because they didn't know there was going to be a second one, like, 30 years yeah, later. Yeah, they're like, surely nobody would be dumb enough to do this again. And Hitler's like, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, First World War, um, I think it's kind of like the first war with modern warfare. They're like, there were tanks, and there hadn't really been that before, and barbed wire. And I think that's when, like, mustard gas bombs and that kind of stuff was really being used. And um, a lot, a lot, a lot of young men died in that war. And... Those that came back, they didn't have PTSD yet. I I don't know if they were calling it shell shock yet, if that was more like a term from the Second World War. But um, we, we as a society are really bad at acknowledging mental health and that kind of thing. So we were all just kind of like, just fuck up, champ, you know, when they came back and they got like nothing. So Toby had a pretty horrific experience and then, you know, can't just coherently tell somebody like, oh, yeah, I saw those kids screwing around throwing rocks and they hit that girl. You know, that would have ended everything. It would be a really short book. We'd be like, why was this recommended to us? <laughs> but he just probably spends a lot of time in his own head and just isn't used to talking to people anymore. Yeah. If you have anything else to add that I didn't include, feel free. <laughs> uh, I don't think so for this one. I'm excited for the next chapter, though, because it does have one of the times that I laughed in this. Oh, good. Okay. All right, let's get going. Chapter 10. At church on Sunday, the Glengarrys and Annabelle's family are cold towards each other. Things heat up, though, when Constable Alaska 
comes around and speaks with the adults. Annabelle's mother raises her voice that Toby's innocent until proven guilty and he shouldn't be considered guilty since the only evidence against him is from Betty, a girl who's been up to no good. She storms away and I gotta say I love Annabelle's mom. At dinner, the mom tells the kids to keep away from Betty and to tell Mrs. Taylor when she's on her bullshit again. Lily gets sniffy about bearing false witness against neighbors, but she shuts her stupid face when Annabelle gets up and shows all of them the bruise. Uh, later, Annabelle's mother treats the bruise, uh, and when Annabelle starts fretting about what's going to happen to Toby, her mom reassures her that Constable Aleska is a good man, and he'll do right by Toby since there's no real evidence against him. Okay, so please, you're... Please tell me what made you laugh. I was going to say, your synopsis doesn't leave much room for laughing, but I want to clarify that there is a funny part because it starts with them at church and uh, the whole time Annabelle is drawing a horse and then her grandfather looks down at it and goes, that's a fine dog, Annabelle. <laughs> Annabelle's not an artist. <laughs> yeah, I liked that part, but also I was like, this is the 1940s. No one's hitting her and telling her to pay attention to God or anything. They're just like, okay, go ahead, draw. She's being quiet. Who gives a shit? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, chapter 11. Yeah, that, that was it. I just, I like, I like the drawing. You know, actually, I thought you would. <laughs> <laughs> okay, chapter 11, bankruptcy. Annabelle goes to school on Monday, determined to get Andy's version of events, but he and Betty aren't in school. Mrs. Taylor implores the children that if they have any information about what happened to Ruth, that they come forward. And, and if they saw Toby on the hillside, they need to say something. Um, Annabelle asks where Mrs. Taylor heard Toby had been on the hillside, and she says that the Glengarrys were telling everyone at church. Annabelle then asks if then if it's okay that she can go up to the belfry and look out the window. Well, Mrs. Taylor's like, um, why? Annabelle says Betty claims she was up there with Andy when the rock incident went down. Mrs. Taylor is very thrown by this information. She tests the door to the belfry, and it doesn't open. Then she distracts the kids with a lesson. Later, Andy comes in and he demands to know where Betty is. When they all just like, uh, he leaves. After school, Mrs. Taylor asks Annabelle if she can go to her house to speak to her parents. Um, once Annabelle ascertains that she and her brothers aren't in trouble, that made me laugh. She's like, did we do something? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, once she figures out they're not in trouble, she's like, if you have a phone, you can just call. But Mrs. Taylor doesn't want the risk of the operator eavesdropping. So this is some serious ish. Uh, when Annabelle's brothers go tearing off ahead of her, she gets a ride home in Mrs. Taylor's car. Haha, <laughs> suck it, little brothers. Mrs. Taylor sits down with the parents <laughs> and reveals, there's no way Betty was up in the belfry. She'd caught Betty and Andy up there before, and she locked it up. She's got the only key, and she keeps it on her person at all times. Basically, Betty's story is BS. They urge her to tell Constable Aleska about this, but tell her not to bother alerting the Glengarrys, who are in serious denial. At the very end of the chapter, Annabelle says, We didn't talk about the rest of it, how badly she had bullied me, how I suspected she and Andy had hurt James, but the lid was off, the worms were rearing their slick little heads, and they would soon be spilling out with their mucky secrets. So that's a roundabout reference to, like, you know, opening that can of worms. Fun fact, the phrase can of worms was not coined until the 50s. Zero out of ten completely unreadable. No, <laughs> no I, I didn't have a problem with it. I just, I was reading, I was like, I wonder how old that phrase is. Because it doesn't sound like a super old phrase, but it also, like, it could be. Well, how long has canning been around, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't... Maybe the term was invented by Annabelle in the 50s because it came to her in the 1940s. Ooh. Huh? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> 
That's actually the the whole book was actually the origin story for the phrase "can of worms." Yeah, everything else is is uh, just inconsequential. Totally. Chapter twelve. That night, Constable Alaska shows up at the house, uh, waking everyone up. He tells them Betty Glengarry's gone missing. She left for school that morning and then never came home. Annabelle's brothers get sent back to bed, and when Aunt Lily tries to send Annabelle as well, the dad overrules her and says Annabelle can stay. The thing about Betty being missing is that no one can find Toby either, and this looks really bad. Constable Aleska takes one of the pictures from Toby's shack out of his pocket. It's a picture of Annabelle taken when she was unaware. This looks worse. Aunt Lily remembers that Toby's pictures just came in, and she hands uh, the envelope to the constable. He finds a shot of Ruth right after she got nailed by the rock. Okay, this looks even worse. To his credit, the constable doesn't freak out. He figures Toby's long gone, and he wants to focus in his investigation on finding Betty, and the next person he needs to talk to is Andy Woodbury. I was impressed by how good a cop this guy was, actually, for being like a small-town guy. Yeah. When they pulled out the picture of Ruth, I my first thought was actually that that would have led credence to him being innocent, um, just because I felt like the time between throwing a rock and then actually like getting your camera up and steady for a picture, like uh, things were moving so quickly, uh, with them trying to you know like rush Ruth to the hospital and stuff. My first thought was he wouldn't have had time to like chuck the rock and then get his camera out, but. That's just yeah, but I, that's knew they, I knew he didn't thinking do logically though. <laughs> right, that's the, that's not thinking with prejudice. Right, you'd be all like, "Well, how would? Why would?" You? <laughs> that doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> but his story of like he lifted the camera to try to get you know footage of this dumb bitch like in mid throw. Yeah, like makes more sense. When you're yeah, like, it's okay, like I, I tried to that. get mid throw, but you know, it cameras weren't exactly you know uh, sophisticated. Yeah, and kids so. run so. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> Kids run, I know. I've been chasing them all day. Okay. okay, let's move on. Chapter 13. Annabelle doesn't get much sleep that night, and she wakes up at 4 a.m. Her parents are up, and Constable Aleska is at the table eating an early breakfast. He hasn't found Betty yet, and Andy hadn't seen her since his father had kept him home to help fix a fence. Um, Aunt Lily comes in, and she demands to know if they've captured Toby. Her theory is that Toby's keeping Betty prisoner. Annabelle doesn't know why he would do that. Bless her heart. The constable says they haven't been looking for Toby, but he sent for the state police to begin a search. Annabelle goes up to her room where she dresses in the dark and then slips past her mother out of the house. Her father and the constable have gone. Uh, They've gone out on the search for Betty. And not wanting to be caught by the men, Annabelle goes through the woods to Toby's smokehouse home. And wonder of wonders he's there because they're not looking for him yet. Okay, there was one thing that irritated me, and I'm such a stupid asshole for it bugging me. But this line here, I can make out a stump with an axe in it, and I thought unbidden of King Arthur pulling Excalibur from the stone. That's not the sword. That The sword was Calibur. Excalibur is what he got from the Lady of the Lake. Wrong wrong sword. Unreadable. Zero out of ten. Zero out of ten. <laughs> Zero out of ten. <laughs> That's all I have. Cool. We, I even wrote I down. I mean, we, we each get a couple of petty ones. Well, I mean, she did go to school in a one-room schoolhouse, so maybe she didn't know that it was actually Caliburn. Besides, King Arthur isn't real, so who cares? <laughs> wow. Next you're going to tell me that Sherlock Holmes wasn't real. Oh, he was real. He was just like a woman, though. Oh, okay. Her name was uh Charlotte. Anyway, chapter 14. Toby had been out fishing all day, so Betty's disappearance is news to him. 
Annabelle tells him they've they've seen the picture he took of the assault on Ruth, and he insists he didn't throw the rock. Annabelle assures him that she believes him. Toby took the picture, trying to catch Betty in the act. Annabelle's like, why didn't you just tell my dad that? And Toby tells her that sometimes his words don't come out right. Well, no one's going to believe him now. Uh, Annabelle orders him to come with her, prompting him to say that she sounds like her mother. But he comes along with her all the same. She takes Toby back to her family's farm and hides him in the barn. She lets out all the animals since her father was too busy searching to do so. And it'll keep people away from the barn for a while. Uh, she promises Toby she'll be back with supplies for him and has him hide up in the hayloft despite his fear of heights. Uh, we interpreted uh, Toby's line differently. Because he says, I, I tried to take her picture, but she threw it so fast, and then she ducked into the bushes. And then Annabelle says, then why didn't you say so when my father came to talk with you? Toby looked away. Things come out right or they don't. And so you're interpreting it as sometimes his words don't come out right. I thought he was talking like grander, like it doesn't matter what I do. Things are going to work themselves out or they won't. That's how the words get interpreted later. But I thought, I don't know. I thought it was pretty obvious this time because when he's like, hey, the kids say so this. And then he says, like, they sharpened the thing on the turtle rock. It's like, OK, I saw them sharp. <laughs> you know, they did that. And you can go to the turtle rock and you can see the marks where they did it. But you need to specify who they is, Toby. Because <laughs> <laughs> those words, some things come out right or they don't, uh, that comes up like towards the end of the book where she, Annabelle, thinks it herself. Chapter 15. Before returning to the house, Annabelle stuffs her pockets full of milkweed pods so she has an alibi for being outside. Kids have been collecting them for the war effort since they're used for life jackets. I, I did not know this. Anyway, she grabs stuff for Toby, and then she tells her mom she's going out for more milkweed, and then jets back to the barn. She gives Toby the food, but he won't eat until she takes some, too. It's been a long time since she's eaten. They talk, and she can't get his family name out of him, but he does reveal that his favorite food is hickory nut pie. He also reveals that he saw Betty and Andy sharpening the wire at Turtle Rock, and then later, Betty removing the wire after James hurt himself. Annabelle leaves Toby, but promises to bring him a book later. Are there any stories that you can think of that involve a younger boy befriending an older woman? Because I feel like when they do the like the generation gap and and stuff, it's I guess sometimes it can be like a younger boy and an older man, but it's like it's always an older guy that's kind of like lost and and gets some assistance. I don't really see a whole lot of like older women. When it's older women, it's usually younger young girls. So I think they're all operating on the idea that girls are more empathetic. Right. than boys are but now maybe we should collab on like a story where a young boy does befriend an older woman as soon as i said that the song mrs robinson immediately leapt to my mind so maybe that's why they don't do that i don't know <laughs> but if you guys know of any books that actually do have that and they don't end up boning um let us know uh send your suggestions to hfkpodcast at gmail.com Alternatively, if there's one where they are boning, you can send it to our personal emails. HFK Bonecast. All right, chapter 16. Annabelle picks milkweed pods and does various farm chores before returning to the house. She helps her mom and grandmother prep a meal for the searchers. And when she's told to go pick up her room, she does so and then gathers clothes and grooming items for Toby, which she sneaks outside the basement door for easy grabbing. She tells her mom she wants to help search for Betty and that she'll only look around their property. Annabelle's mom senses something's up and asks if Annabelle knows more than she's telling. 
Annabelle says truthfully that she doesn't know where Betty is. Her mom gives her instructions on where she can go and to be sure to take the egg basket back to the coop. Annabelle, yes, ma'am, so much that her mom's like, seriously, what's going on? Annabelle confesses that she's afraid of everything about the current situation and bursts into tears. Her mother consoles her, and when Annabelle calms, she asks if her mom can make hickory nut pie. Mom agrees, and Annabelle goes back to the barn. She gives Toby his lunch and a copy of Treasure Island, and then delicately and kind of sweetly encourages him to meeten up a little. He awkwardly agrees to a haircut, and the transformation is spooky. He looks so unlike himself. The dinner bell rings, so Annabelle leaves him to trim his beard himself and promises to tell Toby if there's any news of Betty. It'd been funny if, like, she when in the next chapter she comes back and he's trimmed his beard and he's completely unrecognizable. But I want him to come down to the, the hayloft to kiss me beneath the milky twilight, <laughs> like, like, and she's all that when she comes down the stairs with her new haircut. <laughs> See, I don't want that just because he'd be coming down to <laughs> Annabelle, who is eleven. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why if this was a book meant for older people, it clearly. I mean, I was picking up on something between him and the mom. If the parents' marriage had been less solid, I think she would have been boning Toby in the smokehouse. Right, but then there would have been the last-minute twist that, like, after the haircut and stuff, it turns out that Aunt Lily was boning him, too. Oh, he wouldn't touch Aunt Lily. She sucks. But he already knows, right? like, she was kind to me before I was pretty, so he'd be into the mom more. Poor Toby. Plus, he has to read Treasure Island. <gasps> Sorry. I've never actually read Treasure Island. It might be a good book. I suspect it's not, but... I feel like I read half of it. It seems like one of those read half of it and go, okay, whatever kind of books. I don't like boys' adventure fiction from that particular time period. Yes. It's Um, not my jam. It's not necessarily my jam either, but what is my jam is pirate stories, and there aren't really many that aren't, like, Pirates of the Caribbean. And I want, I want more, I want more ridiculous pirate adventures. There's not enough of them. I, I had pirate story idea I started working on. And yeah, I have lots of ideas. Mara, write me a pirate story. Have you heard the lesbian sea shanty? Aren't all sea shanties lesbian? My coworker played, I'm, I'm sure there are multiple, but my coworker played me one in the car the other day. And it's, it's like, it's like six verses all by, different singers and each one's about like how they used to have a male lover but they were no good and so they like ditched him and then found like a sexy pirate woman and now their life is so much better it's very catchy right (laughs) i'll have to look that up all right um chapter 17 uh the search party's chowing down when annabelle returns to the house among them is the state cop officer coleman he says he searched Toby's smokehouse and found a bit of bloody wire in his bedding, giving credence to Betty's story that he set up the trip wire. Annabelle knows Toby's innocent, but she can't say anything. Ugh. Anyway, back to the barn. Toby's trimmed down his beard considerably and washed up. He's totally unrecognizable now. That gives Annabelle the idea to hide Toby in plain sight. He needs to act like a dude from another town and join the search. She can't keep him in the barn forever. Her mom already senses something's up. Toby runs his hand over his face and notices Annabelle staring at uh, the significant scarring he's got on his left hand. He lets her touch his hand and they both end up in tears. Triggered, Toby starts a long stream of consciousness about his experience in the war and Annabelle doesn't understand everything he says since I think sometimes he's just communicating images and impressions he had over in Europe rather than like a 
coherent narrative. She understands enough that Toby's been through hell, and she hopes that she never has sons. This is another one of those ones where it doesn't sound like a chapter where I would have laughed, but I did find a couple <laughs> couple elements Good. pretty amusing. Please tell me. So they're talking about bringing the like bringing the hounds in for the 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 manhunt or whatever for for Betty. Um, and the trooper said, our hounds won't be here until later today if we're lucky. Maybe tomorrow they're working a job in Waynesburg. And I just pictured, like, it just cuts to, like, a, a like an intro sequence to, like, some cop show, but they're all dogs. And they're, like, in their little dog police cruiser, and they're wearing little vests and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, like, rolling over the, like, the hood of the car. <laughs> Like basically the the Beastie Boys and the Sabaton exactly music video. That. Exactly <laughs> that, but dogs. I can't stand it. I'm never proud of The other thing is when Annabelle is talking to Toby about trying to see a, a deer and she didn't see one, and then she accidentally spooked one that had been there all along, but she hadn't noticed because it blended in. And Toby goes, That's a very nice story, Annabelle. And she's like, I'm glad you liked it. I waited for the penny to drop. He waited right along with me. You're the deer. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> He's like, that's a nice story. And I was like, oh, you don't get the point. <laughs> but he just sits there so patiently, just like, like uh-huh. I'm glad, I'm glad she told me that. That's very nice. He's got kind of like the Olaf face of just like, uh-huh, and? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Chapter 18. Toby cries himself to sleep, and Annabelle goes back to the house. She finds out that Officer Coleman has gone to the Woodbury house to talk to Andy. He left his car at Annabelle's family's farm, and Annabelle's grandfather drove the officer over. So when they return, um, Officer Coleman tells them that Andy's saying that on the day Betty disappeared, the two of them were planning to make trouble for Toby, like set fire to a smokehouse or something. That's all the info he imparts, and then he takes off. Annabelle goes to see Toby again, and he apologizes for unloading on her. She tells him that she'd rather know too much than not enough, and then hands over her grandfather's coat and uh, a pair of his gloves. Based on Andy's words, she thinks she knows where Betty is and directs him to go there. Even though he thinks Betty hates him and that saving her won't help the situation, he goes along with Annabelle's plan. I didn't mention earlier, but when she went to the smokehouse, she like heard a weird noise. She assumed it was a porcupine, so that's kind of been in the back of her mind, sitting there. And then when Andy says that they were going to go to there, she kind of puts two and two together and is like, oh, no. <laughs> she uses the phrase, uh, the words leaned out of my mouth, like she's about about to say something but holds back. And I, I like that. That's kind of, that's how it feels, is like they're leaning out. That was just a very astute uh, descriptor. That's about the only yeah, thing I've I never... have for this. I've never heard that before, and it and I liked it. It works better than my legs were too wet, Slim Jims. <laughs> it works Which, better than pick literally any sentence from that book. It works better than more like sofa bet. What was it? Breakfast in sofa. Breakfast in couch. <sighs> okay. What if that was like we just stuck that in as like the ending line into every book? <laughs> I think what little listenership we have would just stop. Chapter 19. Annabelle tells her dad she thinks she knows where Betty might be. Andy said she planned to do something to Toby's smokehouse. Near that area is an old well that locals know to avoid, but Betty wouldn't. She's probably down there. Uh, her dad takes her seriously, and the men return to Cobb Hollow where the smokehouse is. They shine their lights down the well, and they see Betty. 
she doesn't answer when they call down to her, so they can't lower a rope to her. Um, they want to lower a man down in there, and the constable suggests that they wait for a tripod winch because that would be safer and easier to like lower somebody. But they really need to get her out of there now, and they realize they need to lower someone down there like that instant. Annabelle's father volunteers, but uh, Toby steps in. None of these knuckleheads recognize him, and he gives the name Jordan and says he's not from around their area but came to help. They lower Toby down to the well, and the Glengarrys arrive to watch the progress. Toby reports that Betty is swaddled in her poncho, hanging from a pipe. Uh, she didn't actually fall to the bottom of the well. Betty begins to scream, and they find out that she's impaled her shoulder on a second pipe, so uh, she has to be pulled off of it. Finally, Betty's loose, and her family takes her to the hospital. Everyone gathers around to thank and congratulate Toby, and Annabelle's father invites him back to their farm. So once they've pulled her out, they're like, we gotta make sure that nobody falls in this well again. What should we do? And then they just cover it with sticks. And I'm like, uh... That'll do it. Uh... Why aren't we, like, leaving it open and then heavily flagging it? Because otherwise we have created another trap. That stressed me out. Uh, um, these are people who gave sharp lawn darts to children to play with, so people weren't exactly very safety-minded in the 1940s. Yeah. Like, cars didn't have seat belts, so that's why this well was not flagged or anything. Yeah. Yeah. This book's really brutal. Yeah. And I'm torn between, like... We underestimate what kids can handle in terms of, like, fiction and stuff, and it's important for them to, to be, like, to, to be respected and, and to read things that have real life repercussions and things like that. And also being like, I feel like this is not actually written for kids and just got more put there later because there's just stuff between the stuff that Toby describes going on in the war and Betty down in the well and all of that stuff. I'm just like, it feels more aggressive than necessary at times for the, for the specific audience that it's, I feel this book is meant for kids who are ready to segue into more adult writing. Cause I'm asked for this kind of thing or I, when I used to be in the position, I was kind of asked for that sort of thing a lot. Where it's like, okay, my kid needs something a little bit more advanced without going completely into, like, four-letter wording and, you know, more outright sexual type stuff. But it's for that age group who's ready, who's getting ready, I think, to read more mature writing. And this is, like, kind of a good introduction to that because it it is the stuff that you would find in in adult fiction. I, I completely agree with you on that. And that this does seem a little older. And I'm looking at the back now. It says ages 10 and up. And I would not give this to a 10-year-old. I think it's a little too heavy. Yeah. And but yeah, I guess that th- also... This, this has a place. This does have a place for kids to read it. It's just a very particular type of kid in a particular age group. And it has to be, like, at the right time. So it's kind of a niche. little little niche. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I feel, I feel like that's also kind of, like, speaking to how I specifically American society ranks the things that we will expose kids to first, like we'll expose them to violence way before like any sort of like sexual stuff. Yeah. Um, and like profanity and, and things like that. Um, and it's like, there's no profanity in here. There's no, there's, you know, I don't think any, like, I don't think even like the parents kiss or anything like that, 
But then you have, you know, you have a, a school-aged child getting impaled and, and getting, like, sepsis and, and a, you know, a grown man talking about, like, babies dying in the war. And it's like, I guess if I were thinking about, like, how would I tr- want to transition a child into more adult reading, I would, I would maybe go with not that. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that it isn't, like, that the story shouldn't exist or anything like that. I just feel like it's, it's muddy for me in terms of like who it's presented as being for and who should actually end up reading it. I can see that this would have been appropriate for me, but definitely not for you. I think we were very different kids and I think this would have been because I went from Babysitter's Club right into like Stephen King stuff and there was like no transition period this would have been much more gentle than what I ended up doing. And I think it would have been this, that transition would have been more brutal for you. So again, this book does have a place. I'd hesitate giving it to some people, but um, I still think it's an important story and uh, it's good, but you're right. It's very, it's very dark. Um, I would not have, if we weren't doing this for the podcast, I think I'd have stopped reading it honestly. Cause it's kind of, it, it's it's just it's maybe heavier than what you would have wanted to be reading at this time. I'm just or... I just keep looking at looking at that ten and up, and I'm just like I think ten. That's not I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, and that's the thing is like I'd be like, well, maybe like maybe like thirteen, but then once once you're thirteen, then you're starting to be like, well, I don't want to read books that look like they're for kids, and so that's where it's also kind of like a it's definitely a very specialized audience. It's, yes, you, you have know. a very narrow window for this to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, I see why it was just a, I don't think it actually won the Newberry Medal. <laughs> it's just, uh, I think it was just nominated. I don't know, at least it's like a kid's book about coming of age that's not about their relationship with an animal. I mean, we got I that mean... for it. All right, we ready to move on? Uh, sure. All right, chapter 20. Toby wears his gloves during dinner and no one recognizes him except Annabelle's mom. Who doesn't give him away? She just hears his voice and knows it's him. So I was just like, ooh, you're kind of into him a little bit, aren't you? But, like, you're recognizing his voice. I, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the mom uh, spots him immediately, doesn't give him away. Aunt Lily is really thirsty, and she flirts with Jordan, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I wrote, Aunt Lily be Myron. <laughs> After the meal, everyone drifts away except Annabelle and her parents and Toby. Um, they get a call from the constable that tells them that Betty's got a bad infection from being impaled on the pipe. And she's saying that Toby pushed her down the well. And now this information passed by phone. So the gossipy operator will be telling everyone that Toby's an attempted murderer. Annabelle's father offers to take Jordan back to his car. And the mom is like, dude, seriously. She orders Toby to take off his gloves. Uh, and when her dad sees the scars, he's baffled. Toby says his name is Tobias Jordan, and he never shoved Betty down a well. Yeah, he's fr- he was a carpenter from Maryland, and then he went to Europe, and it was bad. Poor Toby. I've, I've heard bad things about going to Europe. Don't do it. Okay, we already laughed at Aunt Lily, so that's kind of everything for that chapter, Yeah, that's right? the most substantial part. <laughs> okay. All right, chapter 21. Annabelle confesses to hiding and disguising Toby and takes all responsibility for it. Toby's ready to leave so this family doesn't have to cover for him anymore. The mom's like, shut up and eat the pie I made. And he does. It's his favorite, after all. Um, the dad says that Toby can't just leave because now there's a huge manhunt for him. 
they decide to keep Jordan in the barn and claim they've hired him to do some repairs in there. Annabelle feels like the solution is too easy. And with that line, I thought of you. <laughs> you just be like, I just, it's just too easy. It's just, it's just lazy writing. Um, in the morning, Annabelle's mother lets her sleep late and then she uh, has a word with her about Toby. Just because he looks normal now, uh, it's hard to remember that Toby's actually a confused person. Of the three guns he carries, only one works. See? He's nuts. Annabelle counters that Toby has a reason for doing everything. They just might not understand what those reasons are. That doesn't make him nuts. Anyway, at school, the whole bus claps for Annabelle. I wrote that! Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's weird, but it's a good day with no bullies, so Annabelle's free to think of a plan to make Andy clear Toby's name. Yeah, I had to put, like, when they all stood up and applauded, I was like, in the bus claps. <laughs> Chapter 22. When Annabelle comes home, she finds her dad, Toby, and her brothers in the barn. She's nervous of that, since Toby's hat and camera are hidden in the loft, but the dad's like, oh, I told the boys to stay out of the loft. Uh, sir, have you met your children? And that was such a boneheaded dad decision. It really was. Anyway, Annabelle tells her dad and Toby uh, the plan she's concocted. She wants them to go to Andy and tell him that they have a picture of Betty throwing the rock. But acting like they know what happened and having proof, Andy will be forced to spill his guts. Toby doesn't like this plan, and luckily he's saved from it by the boys running over with Toby's hat and camera. OMG, he's been in our barn. Well, the cat's out of the bag. These boys can't keep a secret. Annabelle's dad uh, sends the boys to the house, and he and Annabelle insist that they can still run to the Woodberries and get Andy's confession. But Toby's sick of playing cloak and dagger, so he puts on his old coat and hat, grabs his guns, and takes off. When the 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 boys come out with the hat and the camera, I heard the "What do you got there?" Knife. No. <laughs> uh, but I was like, as soon as he was like, I told them not to go up there. I was like, you idiot, you idiot, because they're gonna go up there, they're gonna find it, and the like the what they should have done is been like, okay. Guys, we're going to trust you with a very important, uh, like, uh, like something very important, so we need you to understand this, and then tell them to the truth, because if they don't know that they should be hiding it, they're just going to talk about it, because they're nine and dumb. I don't know. Maybe they should have just, like, taken the ladder away, so then they couldn't go up in there anyway. Well, I mean, you know? yeah, that's... I don't know what their ladder situation is like. Um, but that's that. But that's like a mom solution. Like that's why I was like, this is such like the classic bonehead dad thing, underestimating what kids are actually like. Yeah. It's like maybe if you spent more time hanging out with them and less doing barn stuff. Or she comes in to get him once and he's napping in the barn, so he's not even fucking working. So it's like get up, um, <laughs> pay attention to what your kids are doing. We have a fugitive from the law. We're hiding here. Come on. I don't know if this is kind of like a uh, like an in-text parallel to the book itself, kind of having a, a sort of specific audience. But uh, during this chapter and a few other chapters, there were segments of Annabelle's internal monologue and stuff that didn't that didn't feel very eleven for me. And I know like it's fiction and stuff, but it did, like there was some stuff that I was like, this feels a little too. I don't know. It felt more mature in a way that kind of would bring me out of it sometimes and, and feel more like it was the author speaking to me than the character speaking to me. But it might also have to do with it just being like, yeah, most 11-year-olds don't sound like that, but this isn't written for most 11-year-olds. Yeah, 
trying to think of how I was at 11. Um, like I, yeah, I mean, like I was. It's not like I was. I wasn't a moron at 11, but I wasn't. I wasn't. No. think I wasn't like. I wasn't. I wouldn't think you were. <laughs> you know, I wasn't looking at a stone and thinking about the impermanence of life and that that sort of thing. Like I, I hadn't experienced enough of the world. Uh, or of my own, like, awareness of self to then be extrapolating to those things, because I'm still trying to figure out, like, what's going on in my, like, with my own head and my own body and my family and, and things like that. It's, it, I wasn't ready to, like, start thinking about life is but a blip sort of stuff or anything. Well, I know my thinking and everything changed when I was 11, because my dad left. Right. So I was different from everybody I knew at that point because all of my friends at that time didn't have divorced parents Mm -hmm. and had no idea that a parent that you counted on could suddenly just turn on you and like the the impermanence of that, which shouldn't be, but you know, kind of is where you can actually lose a parent, be it through death or them actually just leaving you because they don't want to be there. So that kind of, guess kind of changed my thinking and put me in and so i'm saying like like what annabelle's going through right now and like all the quick thinking that she has to do like okay i'm I'm doing this and that and the other uh i'm trying to protect this man who's done no harm to anybody that it is kind of like changing how she's thinking and you sort of kind of see the path that's taking so yeah her thoughts are more sophisticated than a typical kids probably would be but she's kind of outside the space of where a typical kid usually is so um i kind of gave that a little bit of slack Mm -hmm. Uh, being 11 sucked (laughs) i'm just gonna say that i mean you'll you'll notice that my like my challenges with the book aren't, like, hard and fast. Like, I thought that this was bad and, and dumb and wrong, like we've experienced with some other books. It, a lot of it is, like, a, I'm not sure if this is the direction that I would have wanted it to take, but I don't know if that makes it wrong. It's just... Well, you know how you know, uh, we discussed before that you and I are emotional readers? Yeah. Um, This is hitting different because, like, you come from... You're very secure home life oh incredibly excellent you have an excellent relationship (laughs) with your parents i am not presenting that in the negative or saying you're spoiled or sheltered or anything like that but you have always been protected you've never had to doubt that anybody loved you and cared about you and i come from like not the dead opposite of that because my parents weren't drug addicts or anything right but but like i had a you didn't have the same foundation that i did in in every capacity so so when you read things like this you're just kind of like oh oh no this is unpleasant or like would you really be thinking that when you're 11 well i'm just kind of like yeah you think a lot of horrible shit when you're 11 and you're just like not in my experience like i had friends who had bad situations but i was the harbor and the storm for them that's what i did with my happy privilege i guess i'm making that a thing like happiness privilege (laughs) Because you opened your home to various friends who had different backgrounds and stuff, and that was very kind of you. And I always liked hearing you talk about that. And I didn't quite have that to offer to my friends. Yeah, so I, I came to it with my own bag of issues and stuff. So things hit me differently than they're hitting you. And you're not wrong for anything that you're saying right now. It's just we both 
experience this quite differently. Yeah, no, I feel like for having our first book where we're fairly different in our uh, experience of it, we're navigating it much better than... Um, <laughs> we're navigating this much better than we maybe would have on, like, episode three, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's because we know each other so much better, and plus that, like that realization of like, no, wait, we're both really emotional readers. <laughs> so it, it just hits different. Like, like how, uh, the clockwork book, you're like, this is a heart book for me. And I was like, you do you, sir. Right. I'm glad it was a heart book for you. Cause <laughs> I love hearing stuff like that. Um, this is not a heart book for me, even though it's five stars. Yeah. It's more like, I don't know. Maybe it's more like a broken heart book for me. <laughs> if that's the thing where yeah. it's all like that hit everything. I didn't want to get hit that had hit every, nerve i have yeah but like at least it hit something yeah do that rather than be boring like i think i've said that so many times like just don't be boring <laughs> be spectacularly bad <laughs> if you're gonna be bad. <laughs> just don't be boring <sighs> nothing's worse than just like nothing to discuss yeah is, like, I, the worst no, nothing gets me angrier more than indifference <laughs> kind of yeah it's like you had the time and the inclination to write something why aren't you writing something that you care about? Because you clearly didn't care about this. You know, some of the stuff that we've read where it's like, this feels like you followed a publishing trend and trying to cash in on it. And there's no passion here. You don't care. Why the hell should I care about these characters? Yeah. Okay. Chapter 23. Aunt Lily comes home from work. I don't think we ever said she works at the post office. Anyway, she comes home from work and she hears about uh, the evidence of Toby being in the barn. And she demands to know if anyone's called the police, and then she goes to do so herself. Great. Uh, the hounds are going to pick up Toby's scent all over the place, but the family's covered their tracks pretty well, and Annabelle still runs over all the things that Toby's handled and then realizes she left Treasure Island in the barn. So she goes out to retrieve it, and she finds that Toby's returned. Um, she ex So they're talking about bringing the like bringing the hounds in for the, the, the manhunt or whatever for... Betty. Um, and the trooper said, uh, our hounds won't be here until later today if we're lucky. Maybe tomorrow they're working. And he also felt bad for just taking off so suddenly without a goodbye after, you know, everybody helping him. And he still doesn't say goodbye, but he does tell her that he would have liked a daughter like her. And as he leaves, she sees he's only carrying two of his guns. Uh, I wrote a thing in here, but I don't think that it fits with the tone of our discussion, and I'm going to just withhold it so we can go ahead and continue. Are you sure? Because, like, I'm holding back tears and I need to laugh at something, so if uh, you have I mean, it's kind of dark. Uh, oh, no, I need funny. <laughs> it's kind of dark funny? Go ahead. So, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, hush now, nobody said anything about killing. Maybe not, my mother said, but men with guns are coming after a man with guns. What do you think is going to happen? And I wrote, well, Toby's white, so I don't know, maybe hit up BK? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need that. Thank you. Yep. No, it's, it's that, that line about the daughter that just killed me. All right. Chapter 24. Annabelle takes Treasure Island back to the house and returns it to her brother's rooms. Uh, uh Not rooms. Room. I have an S there, but I think I crossed it out. Okay. She anyway. went to the middle of the hallway, cut the book in half, threw one into James's room. Oh, did you say middle? I thought you said the nipple of the hallway, and I was like, where would that be? <laughs> That's the doorknob door on the on the closet at the end. Okay. <laughs> All right. The oldest of the boys, Henry, 
uh, notices and he's suspicious of her having it. And she answers his question sarcastically and uh, plays off the paper that falls out of the book as a note from the dogs telling the boys to go to bed. I thought that was really funny. That was a very older sister way of kind of managing. Yes. Yeah. Once Annabelle is alone, she sees the paper as a self-portrait that Toby took of himself in the surface of uh, the, a local fishing hole. When Annabelle wakes the next morning, her mother tells her that Officer Coleman searched the barn and didn't find anything. And he also checked Toby's smokehouse again and found that Toby's left his only working gun behind. Uh, so the police uh, know he's unarmed, essentially. Still... While the manhunt's on, everyone's on lockdown and school's canceled until Toby's found. Just to be on the safe side, Annabelle hides the coat and gloves Toby used in her bedroom closet just in case they bring the hounds into the house. Um, are we ready to chapter 25? Yeah. All right. That morning, they get the news that Betty died. Annabelle feels guilty for not finding her sooner, but her mother tells her that she isn't God. And she doesn't control everything, so Betty's death isn't on her head. If anything, Annabelle ensured that Betty didn't have to die alone in a hole in the ground. With Betty's death, the search for Toby gets more serious, and the police get in touch with the police in other states, you know, to be on the lookout for him. In an effort to at least partially clear Toby's name, Annabelle calls Andy Woodbury and tells the lie about the picture that Toby took, and uh, Andy sings like a canary. And luckily, the Snoopy operator eavesdropped on the whole conversation, and it becomes common knowledge that Toby didn't throw the rock at Ruth, and folks begin to doubt that he ever pushed Betty down the well. Uh, are we ready for 26? Oh, was that the end of it? Yeah, yeah. The... It goes pretty quick. I mean, there's, like, a lot of, like, Annabelle's inner mind and stuff that it's just I didn't feel like getting into, so I just... Yeah, I, I, I like, you know, at, at this point... Things are moving away from Annabelle's sphere of influence in the sense that, like, Toby's gone and so the police are out, like, but I like that she kind of reclaims some of her agency in assisting with the situation with the phone call, uh, and I, I thought that it was really smart how she did that, and she's like, everybody knows that the, the that our local operator is a gossip. I can do this. And that was, that was a very cool, like, like, making a play to kind of save the day in in a way that's, like, reasonable for what she has access to. It wasn't like... Yeah, it's like, like she came out, like, guns blazing, like, <laughs> leave him alone. Yeah, she comes out with Toby's one working gun, and she's like, call off the hunt! Uh, yeah. No, it was like, it was like, well, what can I do now with what I have at my disposal? And she does something pretty cool with that, so... Weaponizes gossip. So, like, pretty much your hero, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She's a little hero. Even though nothing really worked out, she tried, damn it. Here we go, chapter 26. Despite the doubt, the police are still looking for Toby. Annabelle's parents are impressed that she made the call that turned around public opinion, and her brother Henry starts acknowledging her as a person and even takes over her dinner chores one night. And Annabelle doesn't really want accolades, though, and she feels tired and sick from all the stress and lack of sleep she's really been getting. So she goes to bed early that night and sleeps hard until very early the next morning. Um, she gets up and finds that only her mother's in the kitchen, and she sees the expression on her mom's face, and uh, Annabelle really wants to leave before she has to hear any more bad news. But her mother spots her. And she tells her that the Ohio police found Toby. Um, they told him to lie down face down and put his hands behind him. He refused and took out one of his guns and they shot him. Annabelle and her mom don't understand 
by Toby committed suicide by cop, essentially. But Annabelle's mother suggests that he had had enough of this world. And I'm just going to just read this section here. I don't know why he did what he did, except maybe he'd had enough of this world, Annabelle. After all this time of living with how sad he was, he decided that he couldn't stay here anymore now when he had us. My mother shook her head. I don't know, Annabelle, but think about how it feels when your hands are so cold they go numb. How it's only when they start to thaw out that you realize how much they hurt. And kind of on that similar note, it's when people are like really severely depressed and they go on medication. It's actually when they start getting, they're on the medication for a while, start getting better that the suicidal thoughts start coming. Because it's possible to be possible to be like too depressed to do anything. So right, um, right, you're yeah. just you're just so removed from it that you're just like whatever. There's yeah, this nothing, man's, and then yeah. you're just like, oh crap, I can see the scope of it now. I don't, right. I don't want this. Yeah, which is probably what he was experiencing. Chapter twenty-seven. Annabelle wears the coat she loaned Toby, and Aunt Lily wants to know why she's wearing Jordan's coat and holding Jordan's gloves. The grandfather recognized them as belonging to him, and Annabelle's brother Henry is the first one to piece together that Jordan was Toby. Uh, Lily doesn't take this news well, and she only feels worse when Annabelle finds Toby's Congressional Medal of Honor in his pocket. Annabelle goes to Toby's smokehouse, and she takes down some of his pictures to help preserve them, and Henry agrees to help her with this project. Betty's funeral is widely attended, and Toby's is much smaller. Through the army, they find out when he was born and that he had no living family members. And Annabelle's family pays for his funeral, and they bury him on a hill above Wolf Hollow. Uh, the end. This is the bummer ending, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there's, it, the very last, like, page and a half is, like, a little more optimistic, because Annabelle I, will periodically did, go and visit the... I didn't the... really know how to, I didn't really know how to sum it up, so... Yeah, so periodically as she grows up, Annabelle will go and visit Toby's grave and kind of just use it as a, almost like a, a journaling sort of thing. She just goes and talks about what's going on, and she's not even necessarily saying it to anybody that can hear, or she doesn't even necessarily care if anyone can hear. It's just, it's just the, more important that she said it. It's the it. act of doing something, yeah. and that's, I mean, that's kind of the theme of the book, is like, we were talking about, it, like, at least she's trying, you know? Like, right. Toby gives up, and I don't mean that in a way of, like, a, you know, I don't see why he wouldn't have, because he's been beaten down for decades. Correct. So it's not like I, it's not like I'm calling him out and calling him weak or anything, but he does there he he does have that element of like what's the point of trying anymore? But she's still young, and first of all, she hasn't experienced just life in general, which can beat that out of a lot of people. Uh, but also the very specific horrors of war um, that she does not have to deal with. She's still there to try. The lesson is always try. And maybe wait until you have more pieces to a puzzle before judging a situation. And um, make sure the VA gets some funding. Yeah. So that was Wolf Hollow. Um, we made that the May read for Memorial Day. Yeah, lots of there's lots of Tobies in this day and age. They don't get the resources and the help that they need. And I don't have a quick solution for that. I mean, it takes money. Yeah. I had seen some discussions of how kind of woefully lacking like the VA um, services are because of uh, that Falcon and the Winter Soldier show. Yeah. 
you kind of see a you see um Bucky getting like kind of lackluster therapy. Yeah. At the VA and there was some discussions of that. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that the part of the problem is the way that we glorify getting people into the military young and with their their advertisements directed at like, you know, be all the, that you can be. Yeah, and it's like it's like I understand what you're going for and yeah, we want people to like uh, you know, achieve things and and to to find to find direction and stuff, but we also we also don't want it to gloss over the fact that it's going to take a lot out of you and putting so many people into that and then fighting pointless wars for decades and then eventually they get to come home and it's like, well, eh, can't help everyone. That whole start to finish system has some some problems. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for next month, we are going to be reading uh, Rhea and the Blood of the Nectar by Payal Doshi, uh, which is we're going to be covering it on release day, which is actually going to be June 15th. So the episode will be delayed a little bit, uh, but you will still get a June episode and then we'll be back to the regular first of the month following that. It is a middle grade fantasy that draws from uh, Indian and South Asian cultures. So I think I think that'll be cool. And it's 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 explicitly stated to be middle grade and not teen, which will probably be more upbeat. I mean, this was also advertised as middle grade and it was not upbeat, but it also was not a fantasy adventure. And fantasy adventures tend to be a little more lighthearted. Well, I kind of had a feeling this is going to be a bummer just looking at the uh, cover. It's just mostly text of, like, the year I turned 12, I learned how to lie. And on the back, you read it's unhappy. And like I said, that prologue lets you know this isn't a happy story. Yeah, and the uh, it has three pages of reviews. And, well, the first five in a row draw comparisons to Kill a Mockingbird, uh, which is also not a super happy book. So and I wouldn't put that in the hands of a child, and I don't think it was marketed really to a child either, so. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's a textbook example of, like, the characters are children, yes, but uh, is it a book written for children? Not really. But yeah, that was, that was Wolf Hollow. Um, thanks again to uh, listener Lily for suggesting it. It definitely provided some really interesting discussion, so that was cool. Yeah. I think we probably, I think the our podcast average for it would probably put it at a fairly strong four um that sounds fair yeah because again from a from a technical standpoint very strong and then it's just a matter of the specific connection to it so yeah yeah all right well uh thanks everybody for listening uh hello fellow kids is hosted by mara and josh produced by josh music provided by ben ash visit him at benash.com if you'd like to contact us and suggest us a book we'll read it you can do so at hfkpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at hfkpodcast. And we will uh, see you mid-June uh, with our next episode. Bye. Bye.